0: You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Medical errors and preventable complications plague our inpatients. What can be done to improve safety for our patients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me is Fran Griffin, a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Thanks for being with us, Ms. Griffin.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me here.
0: Surgical complications, that is an area where we often see patients encountering a lot of morbidity and perhaps unnecessary suffering do you have suggestions for how we can limit those?
1: Well, in the work at IHI, we've concentrated the reduction on surgical complications on a few key areas, in part because these are items that occur with frequency that is disturbing, but also because there are strategies very well based in the evidence on reduction or complete prevention of these adverse events. And the Three main areas of focus right now are surgical site infections, cardiac events, and DVT or PE. Mm -hmm. Let me start with surgical site infections because this work has been going on for a long time. The areas in which hospitals need to work to minimize risk of most surgical site infections have been known for some time. There's literature dating back 30 years for some of these areas, yet when hospital data is rolled up nationally, we find that the compliance is sometimes no better than 60 or 65 percent. And given that the strategies are known, it's just not really acceptable. There have been a number of initiatives to try and improve this area. We had a national collaborative run by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services a few years ago called SIP. Surgical Infection Prevention, and IHI was pleased to be part of some of the development work with many of the other partners they had there, and we have taken that content and tried to roll it out to many hospitals through various projects over the past, I would say, seven years. However, despite all of those efforts, we still see that compliance levels are not where they should be. So when IHI started the 100,000 Lives campaign in 2004, We made that one of the key areas of work because there were just a few evidence-based strategies related to surgical site infection that were so well-documented, we felt everybody should be doing these, so let's use the campaign as a vehicle to get them out there.
0: And are there particular interventions or activities that are not being followed by everyone?
1: Yes. So what we see is for these infection prevention strategies for surgery, there's a couple of key areas. The first one has to do with appropriate use of antibiotics, and there's three aspects to it that are measured under surgical site infection prevention in the core measures by Joint Commission and CMS, and that is the appropriate selection using the right antibiotic, timing of the preoperative dose, so if the patient's going to receive a preoperative prophylactic dose that it's given zero to 60 minutes before incision, and then discontinuing prophylactic antibiotics within 24 hours after surgery, except in cardiac surgery where it's 48, if any postoperative doses are given at all, which for most surgeries that's not even indicated. And that has to do more with preventing the spread of antibiotic resistance, more so than surgical site infection on that last measure. But when you look at those three measures, even though the evidence is out there, hospitals do struggle with ensuring that they are at high levels of performance. And one of the things we've seen in looking at many hospitals that contribute to this, it's not that the information's not known, and it's not that people don't want to do the right things, but the processes are designed in such a way that we'll never get to high levels of performance unless we redesign what we do. Let me give you an example. In many hospitals, the practice has existed for a long time, that for a preoperative dose of an antibiotic, the surgeon is expected to remember to write the order for the preoperative dose in the chart prior to the patient going to the operating room. Now, that has two problems. One is that we're relying on memory, and we all know from personal experience how fallible our memory can be. Right. And so asking the surgeon to remember to do this every time is setting ourselves up for failure because they've got so many other things in their head, it would be very easy to miss it and not realize that you missed it. The second aspect of that is that there's a huge amount of variation in how the surgeons order it. Some order the dose to be given in the preoperative holding area. Some order it to be given in the operating room One of the most common orders that used to exist, and I'm glad to see going away, is on-call to OR, meaning that when the nursing floor gets the call from the OR to send the patient down, or the preoperative area gets the call to transfer the patient over, the antibiotic should be given at that time. And that is one of those situations where one delay in the operating room (laughs) completely throws you off. So Mm -hmm. the dose is given, the patient gets transferred over. And the room that case is going into, they have a delay or an emergency comes in through the ER and everybody gets bumped. You can just imagine the other scenarios. And so right off the bat...
0: That makes it worthless, a worthless dose given.
1: Exactly. So what we've seen successful hospitals do is change it to a standardized process of these are the antibiotics that we know patients should have based on their surgical type with considerations for things like allergies. And we know the timing of when it needs to occur, so we are going to have some standardized process. You can call it a protocol, you can call it an order set, a guideline, whatever nomenclature you wish to use, but it's standard. So the surgeon doesn't have to remember to do it. Surgeons have to agree at a hospital, you have to get your medical staff behind this, Mm -hmm, that we are going to put this standard in place to make sure that it's always done the right way. And rather than encouraging people to follow the standard, it will automatically happen, what we call moving from the opt-in approach to the opt-out approach. In the old system, I was asking surgeons to please use the order set, please remember to order the antibiotic, asking them to opt in to what we say from the evidence is the best care. Instead, we're saying, This is what the evidence says is the best care. We're going to design something that fits our local environment and that the doctors approve of. And this will happen for every patient unless you opt out. Mm -hmm. Because there always needs to be the ability for the surgeon to opt out of the standard if it doesn't fit his or her patient for some reason. But those are the exceptions. And then we can get to higher levels of performance.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing ways to lower surgical complications with Fran Griffin from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. You also mentioned trying to lower cardiac and DVT problems in the perioperative setting.
1: Right. Well, let me start with the DVT PE issue first, because a lot of the same principles apply and that is having standardized processes. There are very well-developed guidelines from the American College of Chest Physicians on the appropriate type of prophylaxis for different patients, given the type of surgery that they're having and their risk factors. Mm -hmm. And if that's what is recommended and the medical staff at a hospital agrees with the evidence, then we would encourage hospitals to develop a standardized protocol to make sure that these are the things that happen for patients automatically. Physicians can be part of designing these protocols, in fact, they must be for them to be effective and safe and supported, but they can design them in such a way that nursing and pharmacy and other appropriate clinical disciplines drive the protocol based on patients who fit the criteria and where it allows for patients to again be opted out if for some reason they don't fit the criteria. And that guarantees that it's more standard. It also makes it easier for the staff to do their job. Mm -hmm. Imagine the nurse coming right out of nursing school who goes to work on an orthopedic unit, and there's these guidelines for appropriate DVT prophylaxis based on orthopedic surgery Or specific surgeries like total hip or total knee, Mm -hmm. and yet that nurse is told, "Okay, well, if it's Doctor A's patients, this is what we do. If it's Doctor B's patients, this is what we do, and so on and so forth."
0: The potential for errors and confusion uh, just goes up astronomically.
1: Very difficult for staff to try and keep it straight. And I'm not trying to pick on physicians, but that's one example. Mm -hmm. You can even have variation within the nursing staff or other staff. Anybody in the hospital, if the recommendation is the patient should be ambulated once a shift. Well, does everybody do that sort of the same way? Within reason, of course. So designing those standards in to make sure that something that's well-based in evidence occurs every time for every patient because the exceptions are few.
0: So really putting those mechanisms in place with the option to change them. But otherwise, things that are evidence-based are going to occur automatically for various parameters, whether it's DVT or reducing surgical infections with antibiotics, et cetera.
1: Right. Now, for cardiac, there's a very small subset that's being focused on in the Surgical Care Improvement Project, SCIP, of which IHI is a steering committee member. And so we've focused on that same segment and that is that patients who are on beta blockers prior to surgery really need to be ensured that their beta blockers will continue during the perioperative phase and postoperatively. Mm -hmm. The studies showing the risk of very severe adverse outcomes up to death for patients whose beta blockers suddenly get lost in the transition are pretty powerful. And this is nothing more than what we would call medication reconciliation. If I go into the hospital taking a medication that's important for my safety, then I should still be on that same medication when I leave the hospital unless there's a deliberate reason to ensure that it's not appropriate for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so designing processes to make sure that these very high-risk patients who are already on beta blockers or who are placed on them just prior to surgery, that they are continued. And the challenge here, of course, is that you've got multiple different physicians in the mix when you're talking about the surgical patient. Mm -hmm. The patient may have been started on a beta blocker by a cardiologist that they are seeing on an outpatient basis or by a primary care physician who doesn't see the patient during the hospital stay. The anesthesiologist may ensure that the beta blocker is administered in the operating room but often doesn't see the patient once the patient goes to the nursing floor. And the surgeon may be operating under the assumption that somebody else is taking care of the beta blocker because it's outside the surgical specialty. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy to have everybody think somebody else is taking care of it and it doesn't get done. Very so fragmented. designing processes to make sure that this is tracked and this is continued so that those patients don't fall through the crack.
0: I want to thank Fran Griffin, a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, who has been our guest, and she has been discussing how we can reduce surgical complications in the inpatient setting, but also how we can improve healthcare in general if we take her comments in a more comprehensive and abstract way. Thank you very much, Ms. Griffin. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.